Hello and welcome to the next episode in our digital download series. I'm Lizzie Williams. I'm a senior associate in the Dispute Resolution Group at Harbottle and Lewis. In this podcast series, we are discussing topical issues in the digital and tech world and giving our experts steer on the legal issues they give rise to. In each episode, we will interview some of our colleagues on a tricky tech topic and today's guests are Gary Ashford, a partner in our tax group, and Catherine Flood, an associate in our film, TV and theatre group. I'll be asking them about shifts in the digital economy as a result of the pandemic and the general trend towards digitalisation with a focus on the film and TV industries. So let's get started. Before the pandemic, there was clearly already a shift away from linear TV and cinema visits towards streaming services. It must be the case that the pandemic has sped up that shift. Catherine, as a film and TV lawyer, can you tell us what impact that has had on the industry? Thanks, Lizzie. Yes, of course. Um, Firstly, I would just say that I, I certainly do agree that the pandemic undoubtedly contributed to this shift and the dramatic growth of some of the streaming services. Um, the numbers really speak for themselves. Netflix added 26 million subscribers during the first half of 2020, and Disney surpassed 50 million subscribers just eight months after its launch. Um, just to put that into some context, that was its original target for 2025. Whilst change was on the horizon before the pandemic, these numbers were fairly unprecedented and I think it must therefore be the case that the streamers benefited from, one, not having to compete with theatrical releases and, and two, not needing to market themselves against too much new content on broadcast and cable television. They were also simultaneously able to take advantage of the fact that consumers were just spending considerably more time at home actually consuming entertainment. It's probably also worth flagging here because it's it's been in the news quite a bit recently that there has been um, a normalising of these subscriber numbers after what was essentially a a pandemic-driven surge. The separation between um, producers on the one hand and distributors on the other is now a lot more blurred than ever. Distributors... um, such as Netflix and and Amazon, now have a a plethora of their own original series and movies, which they distribute often exclusively through their own streaming infrastructure. While the more traditional studios, who each have, you know, huge back catalogues of um, their own valuable IP, have um, almost all launched their own proprietary streaming services to, to monetize these assets. Sony really now stands out as the only major exception to this. Um, In terms of what this might mean for the future of cinemas, it's at least questionable if they will remain the primary outlet for watching films in the future. That being said, people are unlikely to relinquish the excitement of that kind of big screen occasion. And in the past, at least, cinemas have always updated their technologies to attract moviegoers by providing an experience which just can't really be replicated at home. And the more complex and costly some of these upcoming technologies are, the higher the chance for cinemas to to capitalise on this and really differentiate themselves. Thanks, Catherine. Do you think digitalisation has had an effect on the type of content being produced, both from a film and television perspective? Yeah, definitely. The availability now of this kind of really granular viewing data means that producers um, now have way more information than they ever have before about what people watch, where in the movie or programme they stop watching it, and about what people watch next as well. This provides producers with a much better picture of what consumers actually want to watch. Um, and, And clearly, the more established streaming services have the biggest advantage in this respect, as they've just been collecting this data for the longest amount of time. 
From a film perspective, Hollywood studios have often favoured um, sequels and franchise projects, uh, generally because these are just lower risk and higher return propositions for them. I do see that this trend continuing in the wake of the pandemic. So if you do want some more superhero movies in, the, in your future, you should definitely be in luck. Um, the streaming platforms appear to have followed a, a similar logic in their production activities in that by focusing on um, serialized content rather than standalone movies, they're able to rely on proven success in a very similar way. One effect of these decisions has been a blurring of the boundaries between made-for-television movies, television series, and theatrical movies. Current serialised content often has the same production budgets and values that were once reserved for theatrical feature films. As you'll know, almost all of the streamers have converged upon a subscription revenue model, as well as focusing on the, the guaranteed successes which serial content affords, on the flip side of this, in a subscription model, offerings with an intense appeal to a niche audience also become far more valuable propositions if new subscribers can be encouraged to join the platform as a result. So, for example, if you're really into factual programming about nature and, and science, um, Disney Plus, which includes National Geographic programming or Discovery Plus, are much more likely to appeal to you. Big tech is really dominating the film and television landscape at the moment, and technological advancements such as improvements in CGI have already had an impact on the type of content being produced. And I think they'll probably continue to be utilised in the future in order to create even more dramatic effects and, and therefore draw more viewers. Going forward, it seems likely that there'll be more innovative concepts such as VR productions and interactive storylines. Um, I'm thinking of the, the types of uh, content where the viewer can co-determine the plot um, that was famously pioneered by uh, Netflix in the Black Mirror episode, uh, Bandersnatch. I, I, do, I do see those trends continuing in the future. Um, despite what I've said so far, though, I, I definitely don't want to imply that conventional linear TV has no place in this future. Live content, especially such as um, large sports and other major events, have so far largely resisted a shift to non-linear formats. Um, even this isn't a completely safe domain, though. Um, I guess a good example of this is that Amazon broadcast the entirety of the US Open tennis last year. Um, and YouTube is um, also rapidly becoming a popular platform for organisers to stream um, more niche sporting events such as squash and climbing and even chess. The format more naturally lends itself to events in which the viewer might wish to choose between many different live games simultaneously, unlike traditional linear TV. Thanks, Catherine. So what changes does this cause in terms of the revenue streams in film and television? So from a film perspective, uh, traditionally the Hollywood studios have operated with an eye to maximising box office performance. So in other words, ticket sales in cinemas. That's governed their choice of release dates, the way in which they advertise and promote films, and even the terms in the contracts they sign with producers, television channels and, and streaming services. Um, on the TV model, um, financial success has has normally relied on selling the attention of viewers to advertisers. Consumers essentially are paying for programming with their time. But digitalization increasingly allows viewers to watch what they want, when they want, 
now even with the possibility of fast forwarding through adverts. So advertisers consequently have been allocating less of their budgets to this medium. Um, whilst linear television has certainly not disappeared, it does represent a shrinking share of filmed entertainment. Um, in terms of where these revenue streams are coming from now, as I mentioned previously, streaming services have almost all converged on a subscription model and moved away from this reliance on advertising. Most of what they do, therefore, has been in the name of increasing subscriptions. In theory, when a consumer signs up to a streaming service, they get access to that entire library of content for a recurring fee. However, a big question that's been coming up recently, especially since the pandemic stopped cinema releases, is how should studios price premium video on-demand offerings? These may help to generate incremental revenue, but potentially at the expense of the entire value of the subscription bundle. And Disney Plus is quite a good example of this. They charge a premier access charge to watch new releases, and that's actually payable on top of the basic subscription price. It's difficult to know at the moment whether these types of single purchases will persist in a world that's become very heavily dominated by subscriptions. And it is probably also just worth quickly mentioning here that now subscriber numbers have, have been falling um, in the kind of post-pandemic world that we're living in. I've also seen discussions around the potential for streamers to potentially um, think about creating an um, ad-based offering um, to their subscription bundle. Um, and that could be offered at a lower price and potentially encourage that some of those subscribers who have left to potentially rejoin the platform. Thanks, Catherine. So can you talk us through the impact that these shifts have had on contractual arrangements and negotiating positions in your experience? Yeah, sure. Although I would just say it's really an ever-evolving area at the moment. Um, on the TV side, the, the main point from a contractual perspective is that the streamers contract in a very different way from the traditional UK broadcasters. So whilst the streamers take a full buyout of all rights from producers, the traditional UK broadcasters can only take a license of those same rights for a fixed amount of time. Um, and this is actually stipulated by statute in this country. In return, the streamers generally pay um, large upfront fees, buy out all of those rights in perpetuity. Um, it sounds quite good in theory, but the downside of this model is that the producer has no ongoing entitlements and so would not be able to exploit their work in the future. From a film perspective, one quite interesting contractual issue that's been cropping up quite a lot recently is with respect to box office bonuses. You'll probably have come across this in relation to Scarlett Johansson's recent claim against Disney, which related to the release of her latest film, Black Widow, to stream simultaneously with the film theatrical release. Just by way of a bit more context to this, um, a box office bonus provision is sometimes included in the agreements for high-level cast and key creatives. And it guarantees that if box office sales hit a predetermined threshold, the relevant artist will be entitled to an additional payment to reflect the success of the film. Clearly, the simultaneous release of films to stream with the cinema release is massively impacting ticket sales and meaning that these thresholds are not really being met. Uh, we expect to see increased resistance from cast and crew creatives who would generally have these types of provisions in their contracts in the future. They're probably likely to push for a streaming bonus instead, although there's, there's no real industry norm in this respect yet. 
related to this, contracts with exhibitors um, also need to be adjusted as studios no longer have that same interest in guaranteeing exhibition windows. And finally, with all of these technological and digital developments, the contractual allocation of ownership rights will become even more important. In the normal course of things, if a studio commissions a work, it expects to own that work. However, things become a bit more difficult where technical enhancements in relation to VR and VFX type activities are involved. A supplier might consider these works as simply an add-on to their underlying infrastructure and pipeline, which they would want to seek to use again for other customers. This might not really work, though, for the studio or streamer who may be commissioning the development work in order to obtain a competitive edge. The simplest solution, for the likes of the big tech companies at least, would be to develop these new technologies in-house rather than outsourcing it, as that would ensure that they do fully own the output of those services. Thanks, Catherine. Now, Gary, from your perspective, what difficulties do these sorts of changes in the film and TV industry cause when it comes to taxation? When film and TV is streamed all over the world, how on earth can we ensure that taxation is being applied across the world in a sensible way, which doesn't inhibit the development of new ways of doing business? Well, the timing of this is interesting. Um, And um, as you would imagine, um, significant changes are already underway, both in the UK and internationally in terms of the world of tax around digital um, digitization really um, you know the the OECD have been looking at this for a number of years almost starting in 2012 actually um, and then publishing a whole range of actions in 2015 that are now being implemented by um, the various uh, developed countries um, the, this, it's important I think to understand, that the historical tax model has really been around from the early 20th century and there's been little change uh, in that time short of these current um, uh, proposals. So it was built really on a model where people, you know, in what we would call the olden days of making things and then, you know, possibly even sticking them ships and sending them around the world. So you can clearly see a very different world then to the world we have today, particularly around those industries that are really, you know, are very sort of almost digitised, uh, including the film industry. So there are significant challenges around um, to that model um, in terms of, sort of the modern world. You know, the, it really was um, about sort of, you know com- countries that were you know locations of people selling things, um, and you, and you ta- the, the country of residence of the seller really has this right to tax the income of that seller. Now, what the really what the new rules are all looking at is how do you track services cross-border and, and start to look a bit more about the, the role of the, the user of services in terms of taxation. And so making it much more about um, recipient taxation as opposed to consumer taxation, as opposed to taxation of the the, mate, the, the provider of the services, and so that 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 will cha- um, provide you know significant tension uh, in the international tax model. We talk about tax nexus. Nexus is really you know goes back to you know what country what country has got the right um, under international treaties to tax the income, and what what these uh, proposals the OECD are really looking to do is take some of that right of to tax all the income on the seller 
into the country of the the, the actual consumer um, and give the, the the consumer country the, the the right under international taxation rules to take a greater um, take a chunk of the income and tax it. So it's a, it's it's a very significant change. Um, you know, you talk in terms of sort of you know, you know streaming. Um, obviously, streaming um, it, it is 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 fast moving and multi-channeled, and so therefore a lot of work will need to be done to try and help track some of that streaming. Um, and but you know, in the same way as um, the taxation model is changing, they you know there's there's numerous uh, computing um, accounting type packages out there to help people you know help support businesses build and hold their own um, uh, effectively uh, you know, capability to, to monitor the streaming of services. And they're just going to have to get used to doing that. Thanks, Gary. So if you're running a global streaming service, in your view, what are the three key things to think about and navigate when it comes to taxation of your services? Well, I think the starting point is, is almost what is it? You know, the latter, the latter sort of part of that answer is you're going to have to um, look at what systems you've currently got to try and track all these different streaming, um, you know, income streaming um, uh, sort of lines. And if you if you if you can't currently do that, then I think you need to start to introduce some systems to allow you to do that because that's going to be key to getting your um, you know your taxation right in the future. And probably it's important. It's not just about tax anyway. It's about if you're looking to in the future, I don't know, sell a business. If I was a potential buyer one of the key things I'd want to see is, you know, income profitability per stream um, so that I, I could see that very clearly. So I think there's an, on all commercial levels, I think you, you you really need to look at those systems. And then, I mean, this is possibly a bit more strategic, but I do think uh, companies and, and businesses need to be cognizant with the, the, you know, the various taxation changes that are coming down the line. I mean, I, you know, I sort of, in a very brief um, statement earlier, said there are significant changes. The, the the amount of change, it's not just one change, the amount of change is significant. And so therefore, um, it's really important that, that you know, businesses do actually um, you know, speak to their advisors and, 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 ins- and ensure they clearly understand all the changes that are coming because you know, those changes will have significant impact on future profitability and not just in terms of profitability in a global sense, profitability in terms of uh, individual jurisdictional um, uh, territories because um, because of this th- these changes to the nexus rules. Finally, I think the, the other thing that um, many businesses will have but will have to become even more granular is around the, you know, the concept of transfer pricing. If you have a, a significant group with various entities around the world, um, if they, and, and the current rules are that you know, those any services being being provided between those various um, entities really need to be of what's on, in, in terms of what's the arm's length principle, and so therefore, you know, work if it's not already been done will be need to be done to uh, undertaken to ensure that the the right uh, costing and the right numbers are being applied so that full arm's length principles are there on a granular sense. Otherwise, again, you could fall foul of some of these uh, nexus changes in the future. Thanks so much, Gary. Well, we're coming up to the end of our time slot for this episode. Thank you so much, Gary and Catherine, for your time and insight. For further insights, please follow Harbottle and Lewis on Twitter and LinkedIn and join us for our next episode.